It's another episode of the Christian Reeve podcast. But before we get into it, are you subscribed? If not, please make sure to subscribe, like and share the video and spread the word. Because the Christian Reeve podcast is here to stay. I love doing this and I love all of you that support me. So thank you. And yeah, let's get into this podcast, shall we? Boom! Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve podcast. Today's guest is a professional miss musician. Let's say that again. Professional musician all the way from Philadelphia. His name is Adam Eberwine, but he goes by the professional name Adams Wilson. That's the name of his band. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And I should say it's, yeah, it's Adams with an S. Uh, so it's a little weird. Yeah. So I was looking into this and I was like, why has he done that? And then I realized there is actually a professional musician. I, I haven't heard of this, but uh, a professional musician called Adam Wilson. And uh, it was funny because when I was looking up your stuff, uh, I remember seeing like a, a couple of shows uh, that you'd played. Right. And there was like um, <laughs> someone had put like, you know, the, the classic chalkboard thing where they've written the names and someone's written adam wilson and i knew i just knew that it was someone like oh they, they must have just had a spelling mistake in their name i'll fix that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's like it's on album covers it's on t-shirts or whatever and yeah, you know it's yeah, in yeah. my email and so when i was whenever i was going back and forth with like you know um club promoters or managers whatever uh it's amazing how often people would correct me on that and it's like uh it's you know I blame my mom. She thought that it would be hilarious to name me. She thought we were related to John Adams, the American president. Oh, I understand. So your your legal name is actually Adams Everwine, and then the, that's why you've chosen. To, okay. Right. Yeah. So I, right. I always thought people would be. You know, my last name is Everwine, and first of all, you pronounced it correctly, which is unheard of. Almost everybody gets it incorrect. They say like Everween or you know, and so that's the name I thought would be tricky. So Wilson is my middle name, one of two middle names, and so I was like. That sounds like a last name. I'm going to do that to stop confusing people. And instead, the Adams tricks people trips people up more often than the Everwine did. It makes no sense to me. I think it's kind of cool, though. It makes you unique, you know? It's, it's something yeah. different. I mean, I, I get I, the same thing. Sorry, go on, please. Oh, no, I, I, I've only met one other... Well, I haven't met him. I found a person on the internet named Adams. I've only met, seen that one name in my entire... Uh, time on this earth uh, yeah so it's definitely unique i haven't run into anybody in person that's got it i remember a feeling of sorrow when i started realizing around the world that people started popping up with the name christian reeve because for so long it was this unique name and uh, but i have the same thing with my surname where everyone assumes oh you mean christopher reeves it's reeves <laughs> and it's like no i know my surname thank you very much that <laughs> it is what it is yeah. Um, but since, yeah, since we're on the topic of your band, uh, I find this very interesting because you've worked with a lot of different musicians with every single record that you've produced. And um, as I understand, it's like different iterations. So like with every change within the band that reflects in the sound so like for two or three years you'll be recording with a particular group of people and then you move on to the next thing and I wondered how does this actually impact the songwriting and gigging process for you like what are the major challenges with that um I mean for me it's it's uh you know keeping a band so well let me back up like I started out as like just um 
a church musician, right? Okay. Like that's all I wanted to do. Um, I've since become a, you know, a non-believer, but this was, we're going back like, you know, 20 years. And, um, you know, so I knew a bunch of, I was in a church that they played a lot of, um, uh, they had a lot of musicians who were like actual gigging musicians who played at, you know, clubs and bars and all that kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. On okay. Sunday they would come in and, you know, they were these amazing musicians who were playing very, very basic music in the church. Um, and they were always like, you know, jazzing it up and uh, making it sound amazing. <laughs> and I was inspired by that, you know, and I kind of was just like, I want to learn from these guys or whatever. So I started writing my own music. And then um, I was like playing solo acoustic gigs at like coffee houses and things like that. And then I made an album and, uh, you know, I got one or two people to help out, but I asked them if they wanted to be in a band, they weren't available. So it just like, then went to make another album and, in a like a real studio yeah. and I needed like actual musicians because I was like, I'm paying all this money. I'm not going to walk in there with my lack of musical skill. I wanted people who could really like bring up the, you know, um, the level of skill. So I, I hired people and I asked, so I was like always asking for like two or three years, I was going around literally everyone I meet. I'm like, you play music. Do you want to be in my band? Like I just felt like a salesman trying to push people into my band. Um, and it like, I realized like that became a full-time job almost of like trying to keep the band staffed. So it was like, um, part of it is really, really challenging because you're trying to find people that you work with well, that uh, bring something to the music, but you know, you're also trying to find people that are reliable mm. and that takes up so much of your time because so many musicians are not reliable. That's like part of musician DNA yeah. is not showing up on time or not doing the work. That that shit drives me nuts, man. Like seriously, you, you're giving me PTSD right now. <laughs> yeah, and so it's like I mean, I it's always that push and pull. Because that's like the downside, right? Is like trying yeah. to keep the band staffed is tricky. But the upside is, you know, musicians um, love playing with new toys. And when a new musician comes into the band, it's a like it's a new shot to your system of like, yeah, like it's totally different. It's, it's like getting a new instrument. It's you're totally infused with new creative energy because now this person is like, Oh, you wanted to do that with, you know, this song, you could do this, that, or the other thing. You know, they're bringing new ideas and they're bringing new, like um, just new energy, I guess is the best way to put it. And it's so like, there's always that like honeymoon period where like a new batch of songs comes out of nowhere because a new person was brought into the fold. So there's definitely, there's upsides to going through a bunch of staff. <laughs> The, the, the thing is with, with your band that's, that's unique is that like every single lineup change, it's like completely different people. Cause like, I would understand if you would have like, you know, a band and then people drop in and drop out throughout the years, but with yours, okay. Like for instance, if we go to like 2015, 2016, you had like a, a set band there and then we moved like sort of two, three years down the line and it's completely different people. Uh, and the only sort of fixed constant is yourself. And I find this really interesting in the sense that like, obviously you're leading this whole thing. Like you said, you know, behind the scenes, you're kind of like trying to like spend all the time trying to just get this together. So I, I get that. And I've been there myself as well. So I know how that is. Um, but I guess the thing that's really, that's really interesting to me is, is like, what's the dynamic like with, with writing the songs? Like, since you know that like, you're never going to leave the band, like it's your band, it's your baby. Um, <laughs> how do you approach that? Like, because if you know like, Hey, 
there's probably a limit on this. Maybe they'll be in the band a year. Maybe there'll be a couple of years. There's a fixed time on this. So do you kind of like sit down, you write the songs and then you invite everyone in to chip in? Or do you sit down and jam with these people and really include them in? Like what, what, what does that process actually look like yeah. every time? Um, it, you know, it's different every time. Um, so for the mo the album that I'm about to release, um, you know, the process was I had, I guess I should back up again. It's always hard to know where to start because the band's been going for so long, right? Um, but like for the, the longest stint I had was um, with a guy that I met off of Craigslist. His wow. name was Matt Riley. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we had a live gigging band for, I guess, like 10 years, eight, eight or nine years. Damn. Um, so almost 10. Um, and, you know, he and I were the only constants and like other people would come in and mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I had a, you know, a son in 2015 and um, a couple Congrats. of other life circumstances kind of prevented me from um, playing live anymore. I just didn't, I, and I wasn't enjoying it. Like I, oh. I realized, yeah, the, the challenge of like getting into clubs and like promoting it and all that mm. stuff stopped being enjoyable for me and i realized you know when when you have a baby like it's a very um it sharpens your <laughs> awareness of like what needs to stay in your life and what needs to go so i just like i had to make some cuts to my schedule and i was like well the band is consuming like 75 percent of my time mm -hmm. so you know i'm just gonna start i'm gonna stop playing live and i'm just gonna record um okay. right record and so you know, the band, I, I ended that. Um, and, you know, every they, they went on, the band that I was with at that time went on to become another band and they've since broken up because, you know, bands are unreliable and <laughs> that's just the way things work. But then, um, then I called up a couple of people who had been in the band in other forms at one point and I was like, let's just get together and jam and like no pressure. We're not going to play it live. We're not going to worry about what it sounds like. We're just going to play music. And so we spent probably like a year and a half just playing in, our, you know, my buddy Ryan's basement. And, uh, you know, so half of the songs came from that and half of the songs came from like after COVID hit, um, you know, I, I was writing stuff by myself because we couldn't jam anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's like this most recent album, um, we're calling it Parasite and Host. Um, it's just it's like half of jams and half of me, you know, me sitting in my studio writing by myself. What do you find is a better process in terms of writing songs? Because like I've changed my songwriting process over the years. It used to be that, you know, I'd have the lyrics ready. I'd sit down and I'd try to kind of jam with people and, and like make the lyrics work around it. Right. And that jamming element is still true. Obviously I'm solo songwriter now, so it's a little bit different, but I've noticed my process has changed now where I pretty much will just sit down and I'll be like, I feel like writing a song and then I start jamming <laughs> and like sort of seeing how it makes me feel. And then I start writing and I basically do both things at the same time, like the lyrics and the music, which I don't think that's the most effective way to do it. Um, there's better ways to do it, but I don't know. That's just my style right now. But like, what do you think is the best style or what do you prefer doing when you, when you're songwriting? I, um, I think the biggest thing for me is, I love having the crutch of having someone else there to bounce the ideas off of because I'm really, you know, I'm really insecure about my songwriting. Okay. Um, 
And I love when there's someone there who has a better grasp on theory or, you know, the mechanics to say like, is this good? You know, and I'll, like I'll play something and I'll be like, I mean, that's terrible, right? Right? Like, you know, you're kind of just like, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you know, seeking approval from that second party. Um, I think that that brings better stuff out of me. Okay. And like, it's, it's probably not healthy mentally or emotionally to do it that way. But it's like, it's so much more productive because like, it gives me that confidence when someone else says like, oh no, hey, what are you doing there? That's good. Like to be able to build a song faster. Um, and then, you know, two, when you have two minds working on it, two or more, you know, those people go away sometimes and they'll come back with like, oh, I figured out that bridge. And it sounds twice as good as what I would have thought of, you know, mm. or it's like, you know, putting new ingredients into the recipe that, you know, I tend to get very, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, I fall into a routine where I just do the same thing over and over again. And I think like having an out, a second party, a second person gives you an, an extra element that helps you change it up a little bit. But I'll say, I'll say this, like, I don't have a specific formula for songwriting. Mm. I've been doing it for over 20 years. And, you know, some songs, and if you talk to any creative person, I think you'll hear something similar. Like there's been times when I was driving home from band practice and I wrote three songs on the way, Yeah. right? They just, it's coming, like the muse is there and it's just like in your brain, almost as if it's being downloaded from the ether, right? I'm not like a spiritual person, but it feels like weird and supernatural where just yep. like songs appear. And then there's other times where I've spent like two weeks in front of the computer with a guitar and like, you know, got a notepad or whatever and just it's shit and nothing is coming and yeah you're just like everything is frustrating and you're like there's only you know there's only seven basic chords and i'm just like i've, I've used up my palette it's gone and and it's like a slog but even stuff still comes out of that like you still sometimes can manage to get a song and it's like it took you six months to craft but you know the process didn't feel as good but the result is still just as effective. And sometimes those songs do as well as the ones that came supernaturally. I completely agree with you. That's exactly how I see it as well. I remember when I was in my very first band, my, well, not very first, it was like my first proper band where we went gigging, blah, 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 you know. Uh, I must have been about, I think I was 17, 18 when the band started, uh, when it ended, I was 21. So we went for about three years and we wrote together. So I would always write the lyrics. Um, and I had a heavy hand in, in the riffs, but like, I kind of let the rest of the band, like same as you, you know, like come together, jam. I always felt that that was the best way to write music. And mm -hmm. I still, to this day, I, you know, I would, it's a bit different, obviously doing solo stuff, but I still think nothing quite beats, that feeling when you're like yeah we got something here what's this <laughs> yeah you know that just that feeling is amazing but yeah i had a similar thing but what happened to me was that band ended and then i had a couple of bands after that uh and then i started doing solo stuff but my solo stuff when i first started was trash it was terrible um <laughs> it did kind of i mean in my opinion i don't know like yeah. there's still some stuff there um there's like a 2013 ep that i did that's like the last time I did something in a studio um, properly. And I, yeah, I think it was okay, but it felt like what you said, it was very forced. It didn't really feel like, you know, I was inspired and something mm -hmm. came. It was like, okay, this was the best that I could do at that time. And I was still 
I think a, a very novice songwriter at that point, you know, I was learning to write music on my own, which is very tough. But then years later, I had something like what you explained, this kind of supernatural feeling. And it actually started with my poetry, because uh, mm. that's something I just have always done on the side where uh, it sort of sprung out of songwriting, where I go, well, this isn't quite a song. Maybe this is a poem. And then that's, yeah. But I remember that I stopped trying, if that makes sense. Like I stopped trying to sit down and go, I'm going to do this. And I just thought, I'm just going to wait until an idea comes to me. And ever since I made that decision, personally, I feel like I've made the best stuff I've ever made. And I use that same approach with everything, like music, poetry, um, YouTube content, whatever the case may be. I just, an idea comes and I'm like, okay, let's make it into something. And I got to say, I always feel like, especially with music, that's the best way to write because it, it will come from like a feeling or, or like a 2am thought and you're like, oh shit, and you got to get the pad and all. <laughs> own notes or whatever you know um yeah. and I, I yeah maybe it's supernatural maybe it's it, it really does feel that way because it feels like almost in a way like i feel like us creatives are like yeah people say oh you're amazing you're this you're that i don't even feel that way i feel like we're more kind of like messengers like the <laughs> the messages come from like some other reality and we're we're just voicing it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. in, in a kind of crazy way um, but i think like you you hit on something that i think you know for a while i was writing like a music blog about you know about songwriting and you know performance and that kind of thing and i think if i had to like when i was working on that it kind of forced me to like think about the process where i think before i just was in the process and i wasn't really stopping to think about like what is the alchemy here um but like when i was writing the blog it, it occurred to me that like a couple of times people have come to me and said like, you know, you're prolific, like what's your secret to like keep writing more stuff? And my thing is just, I think it's input, right? Like if you are just a songwriter and that's all you do, at some point, I think the well starts to dry up a little bit and you get desperate and you make bad decisions. But if you're a poet and you're a songwriter and you're a, you know, a visual artist, you're a photographer, a filmmaker, whatever, you're an avid reader, you know, you're a consumer of things. Like it's a lot, the well stays wet a lot longer mm. because you're, it's always like new things coming in, you become hungry for more things and therefore you create more things because like there's more stuff going around in the blender. I'm like, there's like five different metaphors going on right now. But, you know, it's just like, when people are people say to me like you know i'm out of ideas or whatever like i'm having a um, writer's block or i'm mm -hmm. having a dry spell it's like you need to go try something new like throw a new wrench into it like go on a trip to a place that you would not normally go like don't go to disney world which i love you know i love disney world whatever don't get me wrong but like go you know go camping in the desert or something like mm -hmm. that go you know go on a date that you wouldn't normally go on read a book that's totally out of your um, experience. You know, like one of the most like prolific moments I had was after I read Ender's Game by Orson Scott, Orson Scott Card, like years, this is probably 12 or 13 years ago. Um, you know, it's like, it's such a random book. Like, I think it's, it's, it's like even young adult, a young adult, like it's not even meant for 
grownups, but I just like somebody had recommended it to me and I just was like completely um, inspired by that. And like all of my songs, just a whole bunch of new songs just started flowing out where, you know, the, it had started to slow down before that. And I just thought like this one book had such an impact on me, right? Like so many songs came out of just reading this reading experience. And it's, I just think that's the thing is like, if you are doing, if you're just one person, you know, if you're just a filmmaker and that's all you do is make films at some point, you're going to get stale. Right. And you're going to be very boring to talk to. But if you are something who has a hand in a bunch of different stuff, you know, it's a lot easier to stay energized. I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah. It's one of the things I've decided to do with my life is, is to try as many different things as possible. Like if an opportunity comes, I welcome it because it gives you more to talk about, you know, and if yeah. nothing else, human humans, we're storytellers. That's what music is. It's a story. It's a, it's, Oh, I this is how I felt about this thing or, or this is a dream I had, or, or, or this is my interpretation of this art, whatever. It comes from many different places. I mean, fucking hell. I wrote a song the other day, um that started as like a, a feeling about like an ex-girlfriend and then it turned into like a, a like a western song where i turned it into this like legend of this woman who like is a badass gunslinger like do you know what i mean those that shit just come it grows it grows but yeah, yeah. no I, I totally agree with you um this reminds me of two random things but i'll, I'll draw them all together so Firstly, yeah, I, I think you just need to kind of go out there and do as much as you can. Like, like you said, go out in the desert, go on a trip, go here, go here, try a different line of work, do this thing that you feel uncomfortable about. Like, especially doing things to bring yourself out of the comfort zone, I think is very important because, yeah, naturally anyone that gets writer's block is, is just doing the same thing. Like, mm -hmm. you can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. That's literally insanity. And... Yeah. Um, it reminds, again, like I said, it reminds me of two things. It reminds me of this, what, what I was listening to like a Charles Bukowski audio recording one time and he was talking about how like when people get famous, uh, like writers get famous, you know, when, when they first begin, they're really interesting because their life hasn't been changed by writing. They're, they're still, you know, tirelessly writing, trying to get big. And then once they get big, you know, here they are hanging out at like cocktail parties and hanging around with other literary people. And, you know, but they're young. They're like 21, 22. They haven't lived. They haven't done anything. What have they got to write about? Like, oh, yes, yeah. you know, um, I'm at these cocktail parties and this is where I'm at. And it's like, that's not relatable. If nothing else, like, writing poetry music needs to be relatable because that's how people can relate to it like it doesn't have to necessarily be about the lyrics but the lyrics i would say are a really big thing that draw you in and make you more relatable and pushing that even further it also reminds me of uh, eminem the musician like when he first started writing music it was basically him just telling his life story like, Hey, you know, I grew up in Detroit and life fucking sucks. And this is what it's like. And you know <laughs> yeah. that, and that's why people, you know, really related to him because he was just being real. He was just being honest and saying it how it was. And people were like, yeah, I, I feel that way. Then yeah. he became famous and successful. And okay, this is a bit controversial, but I'm going to say, it. I, I don't think his music is good anymore. Um, because I feel like he just doesn't really have much to say. And that's not a knock on him. I still think he's a great songwriter. But if you were to compare 
a song he's written now versus a song he wrote, you know, in the early 2000s. There just isn't any comparison. Mm. And I feel like it's because he isn't doing much. Like you say, he is just a musician. And that's what it, you know, he, re- he need, maybe he needs to go off on a, on a track to the desert. I don't know. But I, <laughs> I mean, if you look at bands like the Beatles, they did that. They went into like uh, India and various other places. I mean, okay, they were experiment, experimenting with a lot of drugs. So that does change things. <laughs> but the point is they went and learned a bunch of stuff went out into the world, learned different ways of life, learned new instruments, you know, and that shaped all of that music moving forward and expanded their career even more because they couldn't have just kept doing, you know, their 50s era music because people would have got bored eventually, you know, and yes, they could have got bored of the Beatles. The Beatles (laughs) are amazing, but if they'd have kept doing the same thing forever, you know what I mean? And that's why I find it funny when when people were like, oh, why do, why do musicians have to change? I like their old stuff. And it's like, if you just keep doing the same thing, people will get bored. So, yeah. End of it. <laughs> yeah, you begin to eat your own tail. You know, I, I agree with you 100%. It's like, you know, when you, um, it's sort of like the, the blessing and the curse of being a non-famous uh, musician, right? Is like, you know, I've been uh, knocking away at this thing since, uh, you know, the early 2000s. And like, um, it's always been a part-time gig and, you know, there's been like, there's been good, um, moments where, you know, I got invited to play my original music at people's weddings and like, um, you know, got a song in a a Netflix movie or, you know, um, got on a couple of different shows or whatever, but it's like, you know, I've always had that fantasy of like, if this could be my full-time gig, that would be amazing. Um, but knowing in the back of my mind that as soon as that happens, like then you're just bound to write, you know, about that experience because that's all you do, right? Like it's only a matter of time before you start writing songs about the road. And, um, you know, it's just, I feel like there is a blessing in not having it be, the struggle continues and then the struggle produces better songs because, mm-hmm. because the struggle continues. If the struggle is no longer there, then you just sound like, I don't know, Weezer writing Beverly Hills, right? Where it's just like talking about how awesome you are all the time, which no complaints of that song, but um, you know, it, there's only so much you can get out of that. So yeah, I, I'm sort of grateful, I guess, as a songwriter that <laughs> I've never hit it big because um, you know, it keeps the music coming. It's funny you say that as well, because for me, I used to be obsessed with becoming famous and successful. I was like, yeah, that's all I want. Rah, rah, rah. And now, <laughs> I mean, sure, that'd be great. But to be honest, I just want to be able to do this as my job. I don't even, I don't mm-hmm. even care really about becoming really, really well known anymore. It, it, for me, if I can just do this, that's, I'm happy with that because it makes me happy. And it, this beats doing a nine to five job, which is what I hate. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And uh, all the, you know, I said this in, funnily enough in a, in a recent podcast with another guest. Like, I think it's better if, if you become famous later in life. Like, you need to live a life in order to have something to talk about. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's the struggles that people uh, really relate to. Like, like you say, no, who, who can relate to being rich and living successfully in Beverly Hills? Right. <laughs> it's like, which no I think point is hilarious. More. Yeah, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. Uh, you know, like Bruce Springsteen is a great example, right? Dude's been a millionaire 
for 99% of his career, yet he's still writing about the struggles of the working class and people eat it up. And I'm like, I don't, where, where is that coming from? Um, you know, and he, I think he even said recently that like all of his songs are based on mostly his dad's life because right. his life has been one of privilege. Um, but I also think I'm going through this, you know, last year or two, I've been thinking about this a lot, which is that, you know, um, fame, is, is it really that great? Like I haven't had it, so I'm not sure, but I went through a small period um, where, you know, I, when I was playing in church, it was a large church, right? It was about a thousand people in and out um, over time. Not, at, they weren't all in the building at the same time, but it was like a thousand people in the community. And, you know, I'm up on stage and people began to form like attachments with me, even though I'd never met them. And so like, I'd come up, I'd be walking through, you know, the church and someone would come up to me like, hey, Adam's like, you know, the other day, I, and they would just go on about their life story you know, whatever it was that was important to them. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm Adams. How are you? Like, I, I've never met this person. And they, but they had built this connection with me that in their head was very real. And like, you know, that's like a, such a small example of like, when you think about, you know, being famous, people are doing that to you on a much larger scale, right? They think they know about you because you're writing these really personal songs. Yeah. Um, you know, confessional things and talking about the dark moments of your life. And so people, you know, relate to that and they form this subconscious connection with you where they feel like they know you. And, um, you know, that's weird. <laughs> like, it's weird to interact with people when they feel that way. But second of all, the other big thing that I keep thinking about is like all of my heroes, uh, well, a bunch of my heroes have, you know, died over the past number of years, right? Like Chris Cornell, Scott Weiland, Tom Petty, um, I'm missing a few, but like these people were not happy, mm. right? They, they were at the peak of their game and they were miserable. They were not thrilled about being the most famous musicians on the planet. And so like, I keep trying to remind myself, like, you know, Jim Carrey said that he wished everybody could be rich and famous so they could experience that it's not, all it's cracked up to be and I that has really stuck with me over the past couple of years it's like maybe getting everything you want isn't really what you want and like sometimes like imagining it is more enjoyable than actually getting it and it's like that sounds like sour grapes I think a little bit <laughs> people are like you only think that because you're not famous right it's like, sure, I would like to make money from mm. my art that would pay my bills and all that stuff. But I also have to recognize that people at the mountaintop have said it's not that great up here. Yeah, and that's the thing as well. Like, there's a couple of things here. One, being famous is not what it was. You know, like anyone can become famous these days. Um, so what you become famous for is key. You know, do people, <laughs> are you just well known for like, I don't know, being on a reality show or are you famous because people respect your work and revere you and stuff? Because look, everyone loves to receive a compliment, right? Everyone loves to be showered with attention. But, you know, there are some people who need it, who crave it for their ego. And then there are other people that are like, meh, whatever, right? I think for me, growing up, I really wanted it because I had self-esteem issues and I was really 
you know, I felt like crap about myself and I thought, oh, if I become famous, you know, maybe that's the key. You know, everyone will love me and I'll feel good about myself. But that's that just doesn't work. You need to learn to love yourself first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't really matter what people think. You know, it matters what you think. Yeah. But I recognized um, that recently in myself that, um, you know, it it shouldn't have taken this long to discover it, that, um, you know, my creativity is largely driven by trying to get other people to love me. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't have that love for myself that I should have. Mm. And a large piece of me making shit is because I want people to say, oh my God, this is great. And you're great. And, but then the, the, the crazy part about it is that even when someone says, I love this, I'm like, no, you don't like, you know, I, like push it away yeah. right like there's this weird thing that our brains do or at least my brain does where it's like you want people to um connect to you with your art but then when they do you're like you know it feels weird to accept it so yep. you know you kind of push it away and pretend like it's not a thing but yeah it, it's um musicians aren't known for being healthy right like creative types are not <laughs> I think, generally um, speaking who was it that's maybe it was Morrissey that said it like you know he liked being like a sort of a tortured soul and I think like a lot of creatives yeah we are tortured souls you know what I mean it's like like my life hasn't even been that difficult but I can think of like low moments dark things you know things that have happened things that have happened to friends and that realistically is where the good stuff comes from you know because it's like we're we're as humans we we gravitate towards darkness towards tough things yeah that's why we love things like serial killer documentaries and stuff it's like it's fucked right. up but it's, it's the yeah. fascination with that you know if everything's happy and go lucky and stuff like that's not really <laughs> not a lot of people can really relate to that unfortunately it's it's great to feel happy and, and want to party and dance and be happy in the moment but like a lot of us are dealing with struggles that you just don't see. And I think that when you listen to certain music that can make you feel how you're feeling right now, or you feel like, Oh, I can relate to this. This is exactly how I feel. That's probably where that personal connection you were talking about comes from. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, this person gets my struggle. And it's like, <laughs> well, it's, it's not a unique struggle, you know? I think but, that, um, you know, we, we had a band, you know, when I had the live band going a bunch of years ago, um, you know, we were talking about things along this line and um, my drummer, Bob, asked me, like, <laughs> he's like, who hurt you? You know, because <laughs> we were working on a new song and it was, you know, I don't know how to write happy songs. I never had, yeah, yeah. you know, in my teen years, like when I first started working on songwriting, my mom was like, why don't you write anything happy? And I was like, I, what? Like, I, I don't, I'm not happy. So I don't know how to do that. And like, that has been the theme that has run through my music for the entire time I've been working on it. So my drummer says like, who hurt you? Why is everything so miserable? And you know, the guy that I had been in the band with the longest, Matt was like, um, Adams's tortured soul is our wellspring. Like that's the only reason why we have new songs all the time is because like, if he wasn't miserable, you know, there'd be nothing to write. <laughs> I mean, and that's just, that's the reality of it, right? It's like, you know, when you're, there's only so many songs that you can write about like, you know, get on your I can't I can't even think of any right I just was listening to this new album by Royal Teeth and they have one that's like you know we're gonna make it happen or something and it's all just like positive like reinforcement um 
you know, statements. And it was just like, I could never write this song, not in a million years could I write the song? I have to, it has to be, I just had a huge breakup or, you know, something in my life went wrong. Somebody died. Like that's the only thing I know how to, that's the only thing I know how to connect to. There's these two songs that I've been listening to a lot recently uh, that are really like happy go lucky, positive vibes. But when you listen to the lyrics, they're actually really depressing. And I realized something dawned on me recently that a lot of the music I love even because like, I'm obviously drawn towards miserable music, you know, I love me a bit of Smiths and Radiohead and, you know, go on, go on, go on. Right. Um, and it, it makes me laugh because I'm like, oh, this is I'm just, you know, I, I am. I am exactly what I hate, that kind of type of person that's like uh, amused sitting there like going, woe is me. And it's like, I'm not that guy, but I love that. And that's totally how I write. And that's totally what I'm into. But I'm not a miserable guy, but. I sometimes feel like that. And it's, I don't know, it's that constant not understanding anything kind of, <laughs> but it's, it's, I don't know, I suppose it's good as a creative, but uh, yeah, there's this song recently um, by this British pop artist called uh, KSI. He's a YouTuber who's now going to music. Right. And he released a song called lighter. And uh, the, the, the song's like really, you know, happy go lucky dance vibes, perfect summer tune. Right. But the lyrics are about like basically getting over a breakup and literally feeling lighter, more positive as a result of getting away from that person. <laughs> and yeah. a similar song that I listened to when I was growing up in sort of the 90s, early 2000s, um, Dance the Night Away by the Mavericks. Same thing. The lyrics, like the song's really happy. They were dancing like a, like sort of like, it's a country song, but it's like kind of got that like Mexican vibe to it. And they're all like, Hey, it's all happy and, and go lucky. But the lyrics are like, literally, basically I got over this breakup and I'm happy. And if she calls, tell her to, to leave me a hell alone. Cause I'm really happy yeah. right now. And I just like, Jesus, like how many like actually happy songs are there where the lyrics are happy? They probably just don't. I mean, the last one I could think of is probably, that really annoying um, song by, uh, what's his name? By Pharrell. Happy. <laughs> yeah. For the Despicable Me 2 soundtrack, I think it was. Cause I'm happy. Yeah, that song. Do you, you know what's funny about that? Is I, I feel like when he was doing that, he probably was not happy at all. He's Because he probably had to do that like 50 times to get the video right. And he's like, right. <sighs> Did, I, ha- <laughs> I, I swear, didn't he say somewhere that he actually hated that song now? Or like, I mean, that's the thing. He's this insanely talented producer and session drummer. And, you know, yeah, yeah. he's got like when you once I found out that he existed and like I just started to see him pop up everywhere, like in in my in my history. Right. It was like, oh, I didn't know that was him. And it's like, um, I think it's hilarious that he then, you know, he gets this moment of fame you know, because he's, again, he's a, he's a working musician who has been around for years and years and years, who is responsible for a lot of hits, but he was never in the public eye. Then he writes this crazy song about, you know, raising the roof and all that stuff. And, um, you know, wears a silly hat and he's getting an Oscar and doing, you know, doing these silly dances and whatever. And I just think it's hilarious that like, that's just how fame works, right? Like you get to make stuff and be in the shadows, but like, if you, you know, you write a silly song about being happy, like all of a sudden you can be uh, on billboards and stuff like that. Here's the, the interesting thing about songwriting as well. It's like many people that I've seen 
who I was like, oh yeah, whatever happened to them? They made like this sort of go of it like in the 2000s and then they disappeared. And then I found out, oh, they've gone into producing and holy shit, they wrote all of these songs. And what's yeah. interesting about Pharrell and also Bruno Mars is obviously with, with uh, Pharrell, he was in NERD, the rap group thing, but he was mostly behind the scenes. And Bruno Mars, same thing. For years, he wrote other people's songs. Like he famously wrote uh, Niles Barkley's Crazy. And mm-hmm. um, I remember one time seeing him on a chat, so singing it. And it's like, yeah, actually, it does kind of sound like his kind of a song. And it's interesting what we were talking about with the ego thing earlier. I think a lot of them kind of th- think like, do you know what? I could easily have a whole career just doing songwriting and never be in the public eye. But what if, what if I just tried my hand at it? You know what I mean? And it's funny because those guys are really like, they've probably quadrupled what they would have ever done just having that kind of a career by making themselves, you know, famous um, in their own right, like with their own music. And it kind of stuns me that they, they hadn't done it sooner, particularly uh, Bruno Mars, like with that voice, it's, it's interesting, but it could just be a, a case of time and, and like maybe he did try years before, but it just wasn't happening. But it, 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 I, I, go on. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, all I was going to say was that it's funny how many working musicians write other people's songs as well. Like I know Ed Sheeran has written music for like Justin Bieber, for example. And uh, I think uh, Jesse J wrote some music for Miley Cyrus. I mean, the list goes on, like they write for each other and stuff. And it's, right. I mean, it's a big industry. There's a lot of money to be made in that industry. But um, yeah, I mean, I think people, you know, there's this uh, logical fallacy that exists where, you know, someone will appear on, you know, the national or global stage and they'll have this huge hit and people will be like, oh, he's an overnight success. She's an overnight success. And it's like, no, they've no. been working for 20 years um, slogging it away as a songwriter or, you know, as a backup singer or whatever. And the difference maybe is just that they got a connection that didn't exist before, but it also, I think, belies like how much work goes into making that happen. Mm-hmm. Like there's a music label who's spending, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on promoting that. Um, you know, like there's a publicist who's like coordinating, you know, a publicity tour um, you know, there's all kinds of bookers who are creating, you know, the actual like live music tour, you know, there's merchandise that goes into it, like there's commercial advertising, like, you know, it's an industry. Um, it's one of the biggest industries in the world, right? Like where it, that it's all geared around, like, we take a product, and we blast it out to the world through all these different channels. And, you know, we as the consumers are kind of like, oh, that person came out of nowhere. No, they didn't come out of nowhere. They came yeah. out from a concerted strategy that was, you know, trying to connect them with an audience at a certain time through huge amounts of work. And another thing that really strengthens that that argument as well is like when you see a musician, you know, like particularly when you go, oh, where did they go? They were really big for a while and then they disappear. Like I know I covered this earlier, but like a good example is uh, Franz Ferdinand from the UK. They were really big in like the mid 2000s. They had that song, Take Me Out. It was featured on in uh, Guitar Hero, I think. So that gave it like yeah. more international standing, blah, 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 right? Then they do a follow-up, which I don't think the follow-up had quite as much international buzz, but it did okay in the UK. And then they kind of fizzled out. But mm-hmm. they never stopped playing. They never stopped writing. They write music to this day. Uh, but like you said, it's that particular strategy. You know, like at that time, 
they had a bit of an 80s uh, revival going on, in, at least in the UK. Yeah. And this was everything from the music to, to the, the, the image. And if you look at Franz Ferdinand's image at the time, they had that kind of like emo hair going on, which was very popular at the time. And emo is obviously um, a revamped version of the new romantics movement from the 80s. So like no, nothing just happens by chance. It's all planned. Like I wouldn't even... I. I reckon there's a good chance that their record label even told them to like get dressed and get haircuts like that. Like, there's a good chance oh, that happened. <laughs> that's not a chance. That's a certainty. Probably, I, like, yeah. You know, I, um, I years ago um, in a different life, you know, knew a band that got signed to a big Christian label, um, and they were huge in that world. And even they, as soon as they got signed, they got stylists that took them out shopping got them new haircuts and, you know, dressed them differently. And they're like, this is how you dress now. Interesting. That is everywhere. Like they're, everybody's image is crafted by professionals. And and I'm not saying that as a knock, right? I think that's, that's just a business. It's like, you know, when you go to McDonald's, there's a team of people that brought you that hamburger. There's a supply chain behind that, that, you know, put that meat in your face. It's not, um, you know, somebody just flipping a burger in the back and handing it to you. Like there's a whole process that goes into farming, the, you know, you know, having the cows and like feeding them the right things so that they're plump at the right time or whatever it is, you know, um, there's a whole chain that gets that to your face. And it's like the same thing with music. There is a whole chain of industry that gets um, to creates that thing before it reaches your ears. But it's interesting. You mentioned that that happens in the Christian industry because okay i don't know much about christian music i know that it's massive in america because obviously country music is huge in america like huge mm-hmm. and there's some really good musicians actually so yeah you know, I've, I've been i've had people cuss me out for like in country music and you don't know what you're missing okay i've got I a con- love country yeah so do i man there's i mean like jerry reed have you not got, heard of jerry reed? i don't know him no no oh my god you've got to check out jerry reed he's like the greatest okay. of all time when it comes to country music like but anyway um yeah huge industry uh, especially in america and obviously there's a big connection to the, to the christian um demographic in the in the u.s which is huge and obviously that means there's christian rock and christian metal and that blew my mind especially when i was growing up as this like metal kid rock kid i was like christian metal how does that work and there's actually a few there's a few bands in that industry that actually kind of slap hard like Mm-hmm. quite well um but yeah bringing it back to the point you said that like the image matters and i would think hang on if if this music is about spreading the word of god and you know spreading happiness and joy and god's word and all this why the fuck do they care about looks and stuff surely that <laughs> stuff shouldn't matter you gotta tell it me more shouldn't. about this man what's going on it here? shouldn't but it does right i hate to even talk about it because i'm not in that world anymore i'm going back i'm dating myself but like when i was in that you know, world, like, um, just as an example, there was a local touring vocal group that came to our church and that was their whole thing. They had a tour bus, you know, they traveled around to to all the different churches. It's a huge industry of, you know, you have a built-in audience and like where secular performers, secular performers go and show up at different, um, venues, concert venues. Christian bands go around and play at different churches because they don't have to pack the house. It's already there. The audience is built in. And, you know, 
there's work that goes into that or whatever, but you know, this band shows up, vocal group is a better name for them. Every single one of them had, you know, this is going back years. They had like the blonde highlights, like the perfectly crafted, you know, hair that was just so, and like, it was two guys and two women and they all, you know, were fake blondes or at least they appeared to be, you know, like their hair was flawless. They're, you know, they had the sequiny shirts and all that stuff that were, you know, shiny and reflective in the lights and, you know, all of their stage banter patter was like perfectly crafted. It was not, you know, extemporaneous at all. And it just, I, I felt like that reaction you just had of like, ugh, like that's how I felt when it was happening. I was doing sound for, you know, um, uh, the church at the time. And I was just like, this is skeezy. I don't like anything about this. And it's all like, it's about an image, right? They get up there and they talk about, you know, oh, you know, th they'll say things that sound like a sermon, but you can tell that they have written that very carefully over time. And it's gone through the, you know, the drafting process. It's not coming off the cuff. Did you ever like see like Christian acts that kind of would <laughs> like turn up and be like, yeah, we're mega stars. We don't have to talk to you. Like we're, you know, like, did you get any of that or is that a bit too far? I, I you know, I found that they were very personable. I, okay. I did not get the impression that they were, um, you know, holier than now. Uh, <laughs> ironically. Nice. Uh, no, I, I never had like a negative experience with them, but there was definitely like the level of celebrity right? Like they were, they were the one band that I'm referring to, like, I don't want to name them, but, you know, they were very well known in, in the national market. And, uh, you know, they won um, Dove Awards and all that kind of stuff, which is the Christian Grammy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they were really nice guys. They were insanely good musicians, but I just, it was hilarious to me that, you know, before they got signed, they were very quirky. And like, you know, they would play like the Knight Rider theme song at their shows. And, um, you know, they would do like a, a whole bunch of 80s songs and stuff like that. And they, their songs had like a, a cool edge to them. And I was always like, these guys are more talented than they get credit for. Mm. Then they get signed and all of a sudden, like their music turned into like three chord, you know, very basic no. straight ahead songs. And, you know, they were, and they, and they were open about it. Like the, you know, they had talked to one label and the label told them like, you're not right for us right now, but you're close. And then they got to the other label. They did an audition and the label was like, if you do this, that, and this, you work with our producers, we'll get you there. And that's what they did. They, you know, uh. became a product that was sold on the Christian market. And it's like, I'm not in no way am I judging them for this. Like, that's just the way it works. You know, it's like finding out how the sausage is made. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's a little bit upsetting and you never look at it, the food the same way but that's just it's the nature of the business this is why i never want to get signed by a label <laughs> ever because if yeah. i had someone turn around to me and be like you have to cut your hair you have to say this you have to dress that way i'd be like go fuck yourself i ain't doing that <laughs> jesus i don't know i'd have to see it. the check first then <laughs> <I'd think about laughs> no come on man you can't sell your soul you can't sell your soul I, I don't know. I got a mouth to feed. You know, I got a, a five-year-old kid. Like, <laughs> Okay, okay. I'll throw it another way, right? Let's say I'm a record producer and I say, okay, I'll give you a check for two million right, on, right now, but I own 100% of your music forever. All future royalties, everything you earn goes to me, including yeah. merchandise. 
Yeah, no, I think that kind of thing I would probably like now as an older guy, you know, I'm almost yeah. 40, like I think that would hit me differently than it would when I was 25. Um, okay, because you know, I've only because I've read about the experiences of people who've gone through that mm-hmm, and have mm-hmm. been churned out the other side and said it wasn't worth it. Yeah, um, you know, Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins talks about that a lot. Yeah, like he was just fed a line of bullshit and told he was amazing and that he was the star of the band, and so he became that asshole. And then, you know, he realized like he abandoned his friends and like betrayed them and, you know, left them to rot and the band fell apart as a result of it. And he was like, if I could take that back, I would. Um, And, you know, I just don't think I've seen enough examples where the um, the bands didn't get anything out of it. They end up owing the record label money because they gave up all their publishing. They gave up all their merchandising. And now they've got nothing to show for it. And, you know, Taylor Swift is going through that right now. She's re-recording all of her songs because some jerk owns her catalog and she can't even, I mean, I, in no way do I feel bad for Taylor Swift, but just as an example, <laughs> yeah, just as an example that it's, it's not always what it's cracked up to be. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> again, like I would seriously think about it. <laughs> you know? I'm what's I'm everyone's got a price. Everyone's got a price. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that whole chance, right? Like Rage Against the Machine is like the the poster children for anti-establishment, right? But they're on a they're on a label, right? They they were when they were playing. Right. Well, like not- they had to make concessions about their music, I'm sure. The music industry has changed now, though. Like a lot of musicians I've had on, we've had this debate. Would you go independent? Would you go on a label? And I always say the same thing of like, well, I think it's better to get a distribution deal Mm -hmm. with a major provider, but still own your music. Because any kind of deal where you cut a deal and, you know, even if it's like 60, 60, 40 or 70, 30, they still own a percentage. You know, that's money going to, to people who didn't do anything for you. Like the most, and the thing is, these days we have the power of the internet you don't need this like years ago to get your name out there you needed a company to essentially or the record label to essentially work as like the marketing end and, and to promote you but now you don't need that you can do all of that shit yourself for free so yeah. what can a label really offer you other than mass kind of distribution that's really the only thing that's worth kind of going for these days i mean i mean um, i think I'd say the one thing that they could offer you that I can't, that I as a musician can't provide is skill, right? Like I am not good at self-promotion. I am terrible at it. And so like, you know, for so many years, I've been at the same level because like, I hate talking about myself, right? I hate going on social media and saying, hey, look at this thing I did. You know, I do it because I know I need to in order for someone to Mm. hear it. And that's what I want. The ultimate goal is for people to hear the music, but like, I still am terrible at it despite having been involved in this business quote unquote for, you know, almost 20 years. So it's like, as a great example, um, you know, we um, went through one of those companies that licenses your music for film and TV and they put one of our songs in a Netflix film. Yeah, and I was uh, like, "If you wanna run, is that correct?" In 2018, run, yeah, yeah, it was on a um, a movie called The Keeping Hours. Yes, that's right. Which is a decent movie. Like, I was actually surprised. I expected it to be a piece of junk, but it was actually <laughs> <pretty> good. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, it's a 
film with Lee Pace and uh, you know, they play, he's like, he's going through a kind of a moment where he's, um, you know, him and his wife have divorced because their son passed away. And so like, he's packing up the house and he's just sitting there drinking a beer, listening to our song. And like, that was a holy shit experience. Right. But, you know, I talked to a couple of friends where they were like, Oh, did you get some good money out of that? I was like, no, <laughs> I got like a couple tanks of gas out of it. Maybe. Wait, wait, hold the, on. Do you not get like con- constant royalties from that song? Oh no, 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 no. So that's the thing is like the licensing. Yeah. This is a whole thing. We're getting like way far away from, we're talking about industry now, right? The, the world of licensing is a total, um, I'm not, it is meant to put hands on the money of the publishers and not so much the musician, right? So same as record it, industry then, basically. Absolutely. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's in taken the place of that, right? In the modern yeah. world. So like, you know, the publisher now owns that song yeah. in perpetuity. And, Damn. and we got 50% of the payment. The, the publisher got the other 50%. And then because there's three songwriters, I had to split it three ways. So it was like maybe a tank and a half of gas for me. Um, and then for the other two guys. And like the publisher, if, if that song were to get picked up by somebody else, they would get equal payment as I would. And it's, you know, to but me, hold on. if it would get picked up, that you'd still get money now. Like let's say it gets picked I up for another so. movie. Yeah, okay. if there was another payment put out, I would get fifty percent of it. I think. Okay, so you didn't get totally screwed. Like, there's still something that. That's I'm not. Good. I'm not even saying I'm, I'm. In no way am I saying I'm screwed. I'm just saying it's not like it's a fair deal because they did the work of going and getting that in a, okay. in a movie that I couldn't do. Yeah. But I just am saying it's not what people imagine. Like, oh, you know, I wrote my rent check that month from you know getting yeah. a song on Netflix. But no, like it's it's some it's some money. It's nice to get paid for your work, but it's not, you know, because the music industry has become so flooded with musicians who are able, you know, the democratization of music has made it such that anybody can make the music now, but anybody can make the music now. And so there's, if you walk on a deal, there's a thousand, a million people behind you who will happily take that deal and not care about whether they get paid or not. Yeah, but I again, I feel it's like what we've been saying before. You got to think about the future. Like yeah. things have changed. Do you know what I mean? Like even for you, like, you talk about like, okay, or oh, if I did a deal with a record label, I could get skill from them. Dude, you'd be better off just employing someone to do your social media marketing for you. That would be better off long term than signing with a record yeah. label because of these booky percentage deals. Like I'm a, I'm a business guy. So when I look at that, I'm like, okay, screwed is a bit of a harsh word, but I always think that the percentage should be in favor of the musician. Right. Do you know what I mean? It, even if it's like, I don't know, 55 45 i still think that's better just because you have that controlling interest and you know you can get kind of you can say oh i know actually we want xx and x you know but if it's like 50 50 or weighted against you you don't have it's the same as running a business you don't have the uh the kind of the say so or like you know you've got other people to answer to and i I just think that's bs when it's your own music your own product that you've created tirelessly and put effort into you know i don't know maybe maybe it's just because i'm a musician so i'm like fight the good fight screw the man you know it's that kind of (laughs) (laughs) i get it and i've been there but i'm also like you know i I try to be a little bit more um i don't know what like balanced about it now where Mm -hmm. you know because we went through this right where we went 
when I had the gigging band, um, we tried to book a tour. Um, there's all these peripheral company in my music blog. I wrote about this. I called them like carpet baggers, right? It's like <laughs> once, once like musician music became democratized, all these like little extra companies came out of the woodwork that are like, Oh, we can help you, you know, we'll be the, your record label for you. Like you still get to keep everything, but we'll book your tour or, you know, we'll get you played on regional radio or, you know, the college circuit, like we'll connect you with the, the companies that book the colleges. Or, um, you know, one of the other things was like, uh, we'll give you the mailing list of all the venues in your area and the contacts for them. Um, you just have to pay us a fee and then we'll provide you with the mailing labels and then you can send your one sheet out to them to get, you know, a gig. So we did pretty much like all of that. And in almost every case, it worked out to nothing, right? It, like it ended up, I'm like, I wouldn't call it a scam, but it was like definitely a situation that benefited them because they're getting money and we got nothing. So like, you know, the guy that sent us the mailing labels for all the uh, venues, not a single one responded. I think we had over like 200 venues on there. Not a single one responded. Um, most of them came back as not deliverable. So the labels were probably outdated or, you know, um, incorrect. Uh, then we had another guy who like, he claimed to be a producer who worked with the, I'm not going to say the band's name because I don't want to get sued. Um, he oh. worked with some big label bands from the nineties and he was like, you know, I can take you to the next level or whatever. So we paid him some money because, you know, he kind of wowed us. He took us out to dinner and we were like, oh, this guy's like legit. And, um, you know, he made a call to a studio for us where we ended up recording an album with them, but like all he did was call them. We could have called them, but that's literally all the connection he made was he just said like, I have this band. They want to record. Are you willing? And they were like, do you have money? And we're like, yeah, we have money. And they're like, well, then you can record here. Um, so, you know, and then he disappeared. So he took our money and ran, like he took a large amount of money. Yeah. Um, and we felt like fools. Right. And we were fools, so it was right for us to feel that way because, like, we should not have given him money until, like, he actually did something useful for us. I think it's forgivable, though, being young musicians. Like, I, like even for and me, I was like, like 30 at the time, so I wasn't that young. <laughs> still, though, do you know what I mean? Like, how, how do you know? It's like life is about making these mistakes and learning from them and stuff. I, th I think it's just now that we have more information and more access to, to know how these industries work, we know that there are options. I think that's kind of what I'm alluding to is that, you know, it's mm -hmm. different. Like in the nineties, there wasn't options. Now there's options and it's like, you don't have to put up with that stuff. I mean, I find it very telling that a lot of major musicians are going back to independent labels. Like Mac DeMarco famously went back to uh, independent label. I think Kanye is trying to get out of his contract and go independent now. Mm. Um, Metallica, for example, they made their own record label in like 2015, something like that, because they finally managed to buy their back catalog. And then they mm. naturally re-released all their old music and their new music on that label because they'd only just been able to buy their masters out. So it's like, I, I think there's a lot to be said for owning your own music and everything. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I hope that that's always the case, right? I don't ever want to lose control of my stuff. Right. Um, and, it, you know, if, if, uh, if I was capable of doing the promotional work, um, I think I would be in a much better state, right? Like, uh, you know, the band would be like, um, but it, it's, I don't know. I, I need to, you're right. I need to connect with the people who are good at that. Mm. Um, and instead of 
maybe trying to do it all myself, but the opportunity does exist. I could do it if I was, you know, willing to put in the energy and the time, I guess. But um, yeah, in, in my perfect world, I had always hoped that someone would come along right. who was like, I recognize the quality of your music and I would like to now bring what I can to it, which is, you know, the business side of it or whatever. And we had a couple of people like that. We went through probably like six managers over time who, you know, were people who thought they could take the band to the next level and they all beat their head against the wall for a few months or longer. And then they were like, oh, <laughs> this is harder than it looks. So, you know, it's, it's tricky. Moving it forward, um, obviously you mentioned earlier that uh, you've got a new record coming out. Now on your website, it states that you re- you're going to release this album or sort of it was stated that you were going to release it last year uh, as a follow-up to 2019's Under the Mountain. Now, I think you mentioned a date earlier. I might have got that wrong, but when, when do you think we can actually expect this next record? And um, more importantly, what kind of themes do you think it's going to cover lyrically? Like what's the direction yeah. of this new record? Yeah, so um, it did get pushed back a little bit. I was hoping to release it in 2020. Um, I was hoping to continue jamming with Dan and Ryan, the guys who um, work with me on this one. And uh, but then COVID hit and, you know, that really impacted our schedule. So I'm hoping that it will be done. It's in mastering right now. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I'm hoping to get it back in the next week. And then, you know, it should be out, I would think, in like a month or so. Um, What was the name again of the record? uh, Parasite and Host. Parasite and Host, okay. Yeah. So lyrically, uh, this album is, it's a whole long story. I'll try to keep it as short as possible. I'm really bad at telling short stories, so I apologize. Hey, longer the better, man. (laughs) I love stories. (laughs) So um, when my son was born, uh, his mom went through a real uh, difficult experience. Um, You know, I I don't want to go into the details of it, but Mm -hmm. basically like, you know, she had a huge... um, it, it just, it devastated both of our lives and we ended up splitting up, right? Oh, I'm sorry um, to hear that. Oh, thank you. But, you know, it's all worked out for the better. She's, you know, met someone else. She's happy. Um, they've had another kid. But, you know, uh, it was a really difficult experience for uh, me, for, you know, uh, you know, a newborn baby, I'm sure, because um, he ended up being separated from his mom for a time and like, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly for her. So after that experience, it just, it rocked my world, right? I was always a, like a hesitant parent. I was not, she convinced me to become a parent and, you know, um, and it was something I was worried about. It was something I was very nervous about. And when he was born, you know, she kept saying like, no, it's going to be great. Like everything's going to be fine. Stop worrying. And then when, you know, when all this went down and it was like as bad and worse than I had imagined with all of the drama, I was just like, um, devastated and Mm. you know my world was pretty much over in my mind right like I didn't know how to be a parent I didn't know how to be a single parent certainly and you know I went through this really dark period where I was just like this is you know it's 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 over life is pointless like (laughs) I'm out um and so you know it was really heavy it was really dark and I made I just realized I didn't realize at the time I started making decisions that I didn't care about other people. I didn't care about myself. I didn't care what happened. I didn't care about the consequences. So I just like, I'm sorry, I've got, there's a guy outside working on, um, so I don't know if you hear some hammering, but I, you know, I didn't have any care about whether life continued or not. And 
I made some really dark decisions that hurt a lot of people, right? Like, um, you know, I was cruel to people, I was uncaring, and uh, I just went around as if I was the only person that mattered because I thought like life is pointless. So why should I bother caring? All of that to say, the songs on Under the Mountain had a lot to do with like, you know, what what brought all this on? Like is mental health, you know, did this come from me? Is this coming from the people who made me, right? Is this coming from my parents, my grandparents who all had their own issues with mental health? Um, you know, it's kind of like delving into that darkness with like a, an empathetic approach. Parasite and Host is like, fuck that. <laughs> Let's pretend that that was the right way to go. Let's pretend that, you know, ruining people's lives was the right choice. Let's, you know, it's kind of like living in, it's almost like embracing the dark side and saying, mm. you know, it it was fun. Like the darkness is, is fun. The darkness is enjoyable. Um, and there were good things that came out of it. Um, and so I kind of like, whenever I write songs like that, there's this kind of character I've created in my head that, you know, cause I'm this very, if I walk into a bar, I am social anxiety through and through, right? Like I am worried about, you know, what is that person doing? Um, is that guy going to get in a fight? And, you know, why is the music so loud? And did I just say the wrong thing? You know, I never, and I never feel comfortable in social environments. Mm -hmm. This character in my head is the guy that walks into the bar is like, everyone should be looking at me. Right. Yeah, and so all these songs where under the mountain was all like the self doubt and the social anxiety and all that, you know, the, the weaker, side of it but still trying to retain humanity parasite and host is like fuck it don't care i'm the one that matters everybody else can you know deal and so it's like it's dark it's dark but it's um it's also more fun because it's like you know um those people it's it's like a straight rock album and i haven't made one of those for a long time mm. and you know Dan i was gonna Ryan, say if i could just interject for one second yeah, sure. one of your I think the earliest record you did or one of the early around sort of 2009 to 2011 time was very heavy. And it's interesting because if you look at your back catalog, because I actually really liked your music. Like I oh, put it to my Spotify style. I was like, this, this slaps. But what's interesting is, yeah, that very first record or one of the earlier ones is very rock orientated, like quite very heavy. Then the rest of the albums go off on this kind of like uh acoustic country kind of vibe i guess um it's probably the best way to sum it up and then yeah so we get we're sort of like full circle coming back to, yeah. to the roots i guess and, and going for something a bit heavier which is interesting yeah this one um i you know i tend to go through like um i put stuff in the musical or the creative blender right and then you don't know what comes out until like six months to a year later mm. right it there's like a lag time so I went through a year of just listening to nothing but like blues, rock, um, like Kenny Wayne Shepherd, um, Gary Clark Jr. And, um, and then like a lot of retro leaning rock. So like the, um, the Black Keys or the Amazons. Um, and, you know, just kind of like, and then I went a little deeper and just spent a while listening to nothing but like Buddy Holly and Elvis. 
you know, where I just wanted to get like, what is like, what are the root components of rock? Like what makes mm. this, why, like, cause you listen to Jailhouse Rock, right? That song is like, what, I don't know, 70 or 80 years old. That song is still amazing. Yeah. It's not like, it's not amazing as like a historical piece. It's amazing. Like if that song came out right now, Elvis would be a bona fide star because like his voice in that, like the grit he puts on it, you know, it's insane how um, captivating it is. And I was like, what is it about this stuff that makes it so damn good? And so like, I spent probably like over a year, year and a half trying to just like delve into that stuff and then see what comes out of it. And, you know, Ryan and Dan both have different musical uh, influences and, um, you know, they brought something new to the table, right? Which is like, when we were jamming, we just would like put together a verse and a chorus. And it was like, because the band is there live, you know, there's an energy to that, that you don't get when you're just with, with a guitar and your notebook, you know? So I think this one has a lot more um, up-tempo vibe to it than any of my previous albums. Cool. Yeah, no, we look forward to hearing that. Um, so, so it's February now. Do, do you reckon within the next couple of months or would you have a particular so. date penned? Okay, so I hope so. I mean, I don't have a, a date in mind. Uh, it's just as soon as possible, you know, like uh, yeah. COVID set everybody back, obviously. But like mm -hmm. um, with this phase, it's always tricky because it's like, you know, once the mastering's done, then, you know, we might have to go back and forth once or twice with the mastering guy. And then um, then it's, you know, you put it on the platforms and sometimes they're, it's ready in like a week and sometimes it's ready in like a month. And so you just, you never know. But um, I'm aiming for early spring at the latest. Given that your music is available on platforms like Spotify and Apple, and Apple, is it available iTunes? Okay. Yeah, it's any streaming platform. So Amazon, Apple, Spotify, I put it out to everywhere. Like, obviously you don't have to go into specifics, but like I've heard a lot of stuff in the media about how musicians kind of get screwed over and, you know, you don't really get a lot uh out of these platforms uh, as far as like money money is concerned like how has it been for you like is it is it worth it you know can you can you kind of make a living off it or is it just kind of like you know what we've got our stuff out there and that's the most important thing yeah i so this is what i'm really bad at christian is i do not do well with the business right okay and uh when when i was a gigging musician people would come up to me and be like is your album for sale i'd be like you know what don't even don't even pay me for it. Just take, it, you know, and that, <laughs> that is the reaction that all the other band members would have. when I <laughs> You motherfucker. They're, like, <laughs> they're like, that's, that's gas money for us. Like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, no, I, I just don't feel right taking money for it. Um, and I don't know what that is. I don't know why I have that um, inclination because it's stupid. It's really dumb. Right. I, I get it. No, I get it. I think it's fair. Like, remember when I first did my very, very first record, like we did sell it, but I think uh, we did give out a certain amount of copies for free. Cause you have to, like, you can't right. charge like you, I mean, you can charge your friends, but there, yeah, I know, I know that feeling that you're talking about. It does make you feel a bit uncomfortable initially, but it, in fairness, yeah. if it's a stranger, why shouldn't you charge your money for it? You know, it's your work. It's, I mean, and it's not like I didn't put work, you know, it's years of effort in some cases, right? Like a year or two worth of work. It's right. every minute I'm not at my um, job, like, you know, I'm working on this in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, so it's a dumb, it's a dumb thing. I don't know why I do it, but all of that to say with streaming, 
no, we don't, I don't make any serious. Can you hear that drilling out there? I can't hear it at all, mate. Okay. So yeah, whenever with streaming, um, you know, we do, I don't make a ton of money off of it. Uh, it's fractions of a cent per play. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think in order to make real money off of streaming, you have to have like millions of downloads and I'm, I'm never going to be in that spot. I don't think so. Um, so maybe merchandise is the better, better route then potentially. Yeah. We definitely made more money from shirts and stuff like that. Mm. Um, when, when we had the live band, but I think it's harder to do that um, over like once the gigging is over, if you're not gigging anymore, then, you know, there's like that, in the moment feel when, when you're playing at a bar or a winery or something, you know, people have been drinking and they're like, they want to come up and talk and they want to be friendly. And they're like, yeah, I'll buy a t-shirt or whatever. You know, that, that connection doesn't exist when you're well, playing. You say that, but maybe you should try your hand at um, online gigging. That's a lot, a lot of musicians have been doing obviously because they've not been able to, to sort of perform in normal, normal venues. And the interesting thing I found is that a lot of them are treating it like that busking approach. And I think it's kind of mm. cool because you, you have that kind of like live stream element where people can request. So obviously for the fan base for Adams um, Wilson, you know, people can say, hey, can you play this? And you can be like, yeah, and play it. And <laughs> so there's that element. And maybe that's yeah. a way to to make money and, and stuff. And I, th- I think it's certainly worth it. I, I know time is obviously a tricky one but the good thing about that is you can choose when you do it obviously with the yeah. gig it's always in the evening you have to wait not necessarily on last you know like right it's, it, there's good and bad to it but you know with streaming it's like you're in control yeah i may get there i'm not sure you know i, I think I've, I've toyed with that with different models of release you know like there's the one album um we call it the postcards project where we spent uh over a year um, writing and recording an album or a song every month. And we would make a video for the, I would make a video for the song every month. <laughs> <laughs> Boogers didn't help. Um, so, you know, it, it was like every month putting out a new song and, you know, promoting it on social media and stuff like that. And I was like, I feel like this is more um, connecting than just putting out an album once on streaming and just mm-hmm. seeing what happens right it was like every month it was a new time to engage with the fans um and it was you know it was a fun experiment but it was also like super time intensive and you know it was draining so um you know i tend to prefer things more like that where it's um it's ongoing creativity you know the performance side of it for whatever reason has just never really i don't have that bug that some musicians have mm, where they're mm-hmm. like, I can't wait to play live and I can't wait to get this in front of people. I'm like, I'd rather just hand them an album, right? Like I'd rather them listen to it in their own time when they're comfortable, like when they're driving. Um, I think I just get so nervous about, um, I get caught up in my own head when I'm performing. You know, I don't have that thing. I just watched a concert of Jeff Buckley um, from, you know, the nineties, obviously. And, uh, I was amazed like he seemed like he was lost right yeah like he's caught up in it and you know he's like being a little bit extemporaneous like some of his riffs it seemed like he was toying with them a little bit um you know they're sort of jamming and I was just like I never got there I never Mm. got to that place where I could just let go and maybe maybe it was an act you know maybe he was like in his head thinking like oh I need to go to a sixth tier you know like all the calculations were in the front of his mind and he just makes it appear as though he's lost in the music but um 
you know, I know I have known musicians who can, you know, they can drink or they can smoke up or whatever, and they'll just get lost in the music and, and really let go. I was never able to do that. And I think, you know, playing live on, on the internet would also, I think, bring me back to that headspace. So I don't know. I don't know if that's the right. Hey, no, fair play, man. There are musicians that do. I think uh, Gorillas is a good example of that. You mm-hmm. know, they have performed live, but they have sort of said that it's like really expensive to set up the whole, you know, animated thing. And you know, I, I think it's fair. Like I'm the same. I prefer writing music to playing it. Like playing is fun, but yeah, I, I, I don't. I have had those moments here and there where it's been like a really good vibe and I think I would still do it, but I don't think I would do it to the extent that other people do it. I would do it like yeah. sparingly, you know, like here and there. And I, yeah, I don't feel that rush that other people feel. Um, but there is a rush from creating music and I, I guess it's just different, isn't it? Everyone has their different likes and dislikes. I just feel like it's more, re- it's, it's more tangible. It's more rewarding when you, you know, you work on a song and at the end of it, you have a thing. I mean, you can't hold it in your hands anymore, but you can listen to it, right? It's there. It exists. Mm. And it's a time capsule. You can yeah. look back on it and say, like, that's what I sounded like at the time. And, like, that's, I remember working with Ryan and Dan. And, like, you know, we had that, like, uh, back and forth, you know, when we were jamming in the basement or whatever. Um, when you're playing live, it's once you, it's it's ephemeral, right? Like, once you're done playing, it's over. And you can have the memory of it, but like so much of that memory is colored by your more modern experience, right? Like things that have happened since then. And so Hmm. it's like, I, I view memory as a, I have a whole, we could go on for an hour probably on my feelings on memory, but I think like, you know, memory in most cases is like, is misleading, right? Like, like say, you know, say we had a show and I was really worried about you know, the booking manager didn't get back to me until like the day before we didn't have a chance to promote it enough. And like, you know, um, the person that I was really hoping, you know, to show up, didn't show up or, you know, and like my anxiety about that would color my memory. Mm. Like, whereas a person in the audience was like, that was a great show. Like you seemed like you were really, and I had this experience over and over and over again, I would be caught up in the details of like, Oh, that show went terrible because X, Y, Z. And then I would talk to an audience member. They're like, that was one of my favorite shows of yours. You seemed like you were so lost in the music. I'm like, that is a lie. <laughs> you are completely misled. But I mean, that's, that's great, right? It's, it's everybody takes away from it their own version of it. But I feel like with an album, it's, it's a record. It's cut in stone. You can't go back. You can't change it. It's there. I mean, you have a different, you have a different approach to it over time, right? Like maybe new things have come into your experience and, you see it differently no 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 it's you're 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 onto something now i think you're right actually our feelings about certain memories change because our perception of life changes so in that moment it felt a certain way but we reflect on it differently later but yeah i suppose if you remember how something made you feel which is generally what humans do um you know you forget what people say and such i think that's kind of the element behind it isn't it like like for instance when i think back to like like an ex-girlfriend or something and i'm like oh yeah the good times it's like yeah but what about the bad times remember how that made you feel and it's like <laughs> oh yeah oh no it wasn't all like because it's that rose tinted glasses effect isn't it yeah yeah I've, i mean i've delved into this a little bit with like you know um reading some papers or you know mm-hmm. listening to podcasts or whatever and more and more i've learned that 
the brain is a committee. It is not a single unified whole, right? That we imagine it as. And so like, when you recall a memory, it goes through your creative portion of your brain. It goes through your emotional state. It goes through um, your trauma state, right? And so like, it colors the memory where you think, you know, like if your present experience is like, right now I'm in a, a, a fear state, I might remember a certain thing, an event from the past in a negative way, even though maybe two days ago when I was in a happy state, you know, I was drinking, I'm hanging out with my buddies and I'm like, yeah, I remember that time we did that thing. And I'm like, it's in a positive light because I'm now in a positive light. We're like, and I'm not a scientist, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just, I've, I've just, I've done a little bit of reading and, you know, I, I'm not claiming to be an authority on this, but it's just, it's been, what I have discovered has been accurate to my anecdotal mm. experience. And I feel like, you know, this is so crucial in songwriting too, right? It affects like, when you stop and think about how these things work, it factors into the way that you create because you're like, you know, you can channel that more by setting up the circumstances for it, right? Like I can put myself into a negative headspace or maybe I could mm. try and steer the steer it away from being quite so negative by trying to think about, you know, a time that I was happy, whatever, you know, there's different ways you can toy with it. And I think um, live music is just another example of that, where it's like, whatever headspace you're in at the time versus the headspace you're in now that you're recalling it. Yeah, I totally agree. I'll add to that as well. Something that you touched on that, like, another person's perception of the same memory is key in that. Like I remember reminiscing with an old friend about something and they said, Oh, that's not quite how I remember it. And it's interesting, you know, cause that yeah. obviously the perception of the memory is equally as important as the details. Cause particularly like if we take like a, let's take like a workplace scenario where you see things uh, that went down in a certain way and another person has a completely different understanding of the situation and technically you could argue both people's perceptions are correct because it's their own individual perception of that event and you know it's not to say that it's wrong but like sometimes that can kind of stray away from the the details that we we often forget about the details because we're so caught up in the emotion of the event and the feeling like you said Mm -hmm. so it's an interesting uh thing to think about for sure i mean you know this has come up a lot with with mental health because they talk about it you know i'm someone who's struggled with depression uh for most of my life and you know they talk about when a symptom of depression is that it colors your life experiences and your memories Mm -hmm. and you begin to think i've always felt this way Mm -hmm. even though objectively you can come up with examples or proof that that is not true but your brain it's almost like a poison where it's like once it's in there it seeps into all of the other aspects of your brain and says, Hey, you've always been a miserable asshole and that's never going to change. Right. It affects your past, your present and your future. And that for me, at least has been so true. Like there are times when, you know, you talk to a loved one and they're like, you weren't unhappy then you were thrilled with life. You know, you were so happy about, you know, getting married or, you know, about what the band was doing or this or that or the other thing. And then your brain is like, no, 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 we've always been miserable and we always will be. And so the same thing happens with the audience, right? Where, you know, so many examples I could point to where somebody is like, I thought this, you know, this song is about 
X thing, right? X whatever imagined scenario in their head. And they would come up to me and be like, you know, hey, this is what that song's about, right? And I'm like, that song, I've made that up. It has nothing to do with that. Like, they're like, this was from your life experience when you were going through that breakup, right? I'm like, no, I totally <laughs> yeah. pulled it out of thin air. It has no, no bearing on my real life whatsoever. But to them, that's what it was about. And I'm like, that's, you know, art is relative, right? Like mm. what it means to me is not what it's going to mean to you. And you take from it whatever you want. And that's, that's totally legit. That's what it's for. It's, you know, I, once I put it out into the world, I've done what I can do with it. And now it's up to the person who's viewing it or listening to it to define their own experience. And I can't, I have no control over that. I want to sometimes, I really wish I could say, no, it's not, you know, the thing that you imagine it's about, but you know, it's, I have to kind of let go, right? There's a, there's a, um, a separation that happens once it exists in the world, it's now up to the audience to decide. So what are you doing for a living then? Like, how are you sort of keeping things going? <laughs> uh, I work for um, a, um, a literacy curriculum company. So they make, yeah, it has nothing to do with music, um, but it does have a lot to do with creativity, right? Like, so I manage a team of audio visual um, like people who make websites, people who make videos. Ah, okay. Um, and you know, like I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm like a manager of that team director, whatever you want to call it, where, um, you know, they create stuff and I, you know, support them in that. And sometimes I get to jump in and help making the actual thing when we're over, um, when we're busy, but, um, for the most part, it's kind of a, a managerial role. Cool. 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 If you had to, sum up your music career with one sentence what would it be christian you can see from our discussion so far i'm not good at one sentence answers (laughs) Um, if i could sum up my music career in one sentence i'd say something along the lines of um it's honest and it's about um the challenges that I have faced personally and uh, it's heavy, you know, like it's, I've never been able to make light music and it's always going to be, it's always going to be honest. It's always going to be heavy. And I don't mean heavy, like, you know, guitars heavy. I mean, like, it's going to be dark. It's going to be moody, but it's going to be real. I said a sentence, not several paragraphs. Jesus. I'm sorry. I tried. (laughs) I tried. I can't do it. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? There's this I can do in one sentence. I think there's a quote, be kind to everyone you meet for everyone is facing a great battle and I'm butchering it probably, but that I, I might get a tattoo of that because, um, it's so true, right? Like I have a, an internal battle. I have external battles. Like I've been slogging through stuff, everyone, but everyone does. Everyone has that major conflict in their life. And like people still manage to function despite that. And it's amazing to me. Like people go on despite, you know, losing their loved ones or, you know, getting fired or, um, 
you know, their child hates them or whatever, you know, like all these huge things that have devastated them or changed the course of their life forever. Um, and they still manage to be human. And that, that blows me away. It's inspiring. One thing I'll add to that as well is that like years ago, I used to be very selfish and sort of like angry at the world, you know, like, well, they, everyone has this. Why don't I have this? Urgh, fuck everyone. Fuck everything. Mm-hmm. And certain things have happened throughout the years, difficult times, difficult moments, um, seeing friends die, stuff like that. I think that kind of begins to shape your perspective of things and makes you kind of think, you know what, this is actually what's important in life. Mm-hmm. And when you start to gain that sense of perspective, that's kind of what I'm alluding to. I think that that changes everything. And, um, what I really want to add to, to what you were saying is that if you have the capability to be nice to people and sort of spread joy and kindness in the world, when your life is not kind of full of that and your life is hard and things aren't going your way and, and so on and so forth, then you're beginning to get to that level where you need to be because mm-hmm. people often talk about like the human spirit and, I think a lot of people in the world are missing that. They don't know what that means. And what it really means is like, you know, sometimes you watch those movies and like, you know, it's giving you that like smarmy message and like someone's there for someone else. But that's the, that's the reality. Like I think often in life, life is like a movie and you, you see those surreal, beautiful moments, you know, the birth of a child, someone helping a homeless person, you know, like I, I see a lot of stuff, um, when I do my volunteering work and I get that feeling afterwards, like I sit back and I reflect on it and I'm like, wow, like that was pretty, that was pretty moving, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. that stuff. It's indescribable, but I think that you're right. If we, if we can somehow just keep being nice to each other, keep spreading that kindness, then we're headed in the right direction, I think. So yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Absolutely. Um, as we draw things to a close today, do you have any sort of final thoughts that you'd like to share with us or maybe an upcoming project that you'd like to share with us? Just an update. Um, I mean, you know, the music is the biggest thing for me right now. Um, yeah, the, the album Parasite and Host should be out in a couple months. And like it's, you know, it represents the input from me, but also from Dan uh, Illy and Ryan Busby, who are the other two guys who are just so critical in making it happen. Um, and, you know, it's, it, there's some weird voodoo that happens when creative people get together and, you know, a new thing is made, you know, I, I like, I have a kid, but I also feel like every album is a kid in its own way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's a thing that was so, you were so focused on at the time for, you know, you spend years of your life trying to make this thing happen and then it does. Um, and I'm, you know, I feel like, um, some guy from the 1930s, I've got like 10 or 11 kids out there right now, you know, and they're all off living their own little life and they mean things to other people. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, so I like, I always, if I could ask anybody to go back and listen to other albums and stuff like that, I think that would be my other big thing is like, yeah, I'm working on this new thing, but I've also got, you know, a pretty large back catalog that still means a lot to me. And I hope means something to other people. 
Absolutely, and I would I would uh, second that. I think you've got a fantastic back catalogue. I was I was really sort of surprised that it hasn't got more sort of recognition because it's, it's genuinely <laughs> good music, and I'm not just saying that because he's my guest. Like I mean it. Like it's <laughs> I I don't often you know add people's music to my Spotify unless it's like I really like it and I want to hear it regularly. And when I heard Adam's music, I was like, this is this is good stuff, you know. So yeah, um, thank you. No, no worries, man. Um, for everyone listening to the podcast, like, make sure you go and uh, check out his music, buy it if you can, and uh, support Adams. Um, massive thank you for appearing on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and then talking to you. So thank you. Christian, this has been uh, hugely entertaining for me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you making the time to do this. And, um, you know, you seem like an awesome person. So thanks for being you, man. Likewise, man. It's been a pleasure. Um, to everyone listening to the Christian Reeve podcast, whether you're listening on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, let me know. Tweet at me. Let me know where you're listening because it'd be good to know. And uh, you guys, I see you guys listening, but I don't see you guys talking. So let me know. I want to know. And as always, uh, if there's a particular topic or a particular guest that you would like to see on the show in the future, please let me know. My DMs are open. Thank you for listening. Peace out. One love. I'll see you in the next one.